We'll sing a couple more hymns and songs after our, during our communion time. But right now I want to ask you to take uh, your copy of God's Word and turn to Romans chapter 8. And I just want to read one verse out of here. And I know we've been in here on Sunday after Sunday, but um, it just seemed uh, the right place to go uh, today, tonight. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, uh, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Father, we come to your word. We pray that your, your spirit would enable our minds and our hearts to understand what's before us, that we could apply it actively to our own lives, that these wouldn't just be words on a page, uh, we know them to be the living Word of God that can affect change in every one of our hearts. And so we pray that you would do that to that end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, I just wanted to uh, share uh, just kind of a, sh- a shorter message on the enduring love of God as seen in the atonement. Um, and as we read there, uh, that verse 32 Uh, We notice that it's preceded by the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? And um, John Calvin actually said this, This is the chief and therefore the only support to sustain us in every temptation. If God is not propitious to us, no sure confidence can be conceived, even though everything should smile upon us. On the other hand, however... His favor alone is a, great, is, is a sufficiently great consolation for every sorrow and a sufficiently strong protection against all the storms of misfortune. And that great reformer then cites a number of Bible passages, which you have there in your, your outline. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Or Psalm 56, 11, In God I will trust, I will not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Or Psalm 3, verse 6, I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Why? Because God is on his side. And Calvin concludes after he goes through those verses, he says, There is no power under heaven or above which can resist the arm of God. Uh, I was reading a a commentary by Martin Lloyd-Jones this week, and he relayed this brief little story. He said a a very intelligent man came to him one one day after a message, and he said it was on Good Friday. And the man asked him, why do you call it Good Friday? Uh, I would have thought it was the worst Friday that has ever been, Bad Friday. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones replied, said, why would you say something like that? And the man replied, surely there is nothing to be said for it. Look at those cruel men, those ignorant men, those men who did not recognize him, who could not understand him and did not see his significance. Look at their jealousy and their envy and their malice and their spite. That teaching, what, what that illustration shows us, is that tells us about the characters around the cross. And it explains the cross solely and entirely in the terms of the actions of men. Look at what they did to our Savior. Look at what Jesus had to go through. 
Poor Jesus. We're going to sing a song before communion. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Well, the answer to that question is yes, you were. You were there. As he hung on the cross, he died for your sins. He died for my sins. It was us who put the Son of God to death. But it was under the almighty hand of God that it happened. And so the, the Apostle Paul here in Romans wants us to conclude that this first verse is, is an incredible conclusion to the chapter there in verse 31 where he says, What shall we say to all these things? But then a new question might pop in your, in your mind. Granted that nothing can be against us if God is for us. That's true. But the simple question is this. But is God really for us? That's what his readers were asking. How can we know that the great God of the universe is actually on our side? How can we know that? Perhaps he's too busy to care. Some people believe that. Maybe we're just too insignificant for him to give us a second thought. What if our sins caused him at some point to regret that he even brought us into mere existence? In the first place. Now Paul doesn't doubt, ask these questions. But he knows his hearers may be asking those questions. And so he follows the first question, who can be against us, with a second question. And that's what we want to look at tonight. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. And here's the question. How will he not also, along with him, give us graciously all things? That verse basically means this. It means that we can know that God is for us and will be for us always, without end, because he has already given us his son. This isn't some emotional thing. These are facts in the word of God. And so I want to look at this one verse Verse 32, and I just want to draw out five quick points for us. Because I think that it's, it's so important to our understanding of who we are in Christ and understanding to the foundation upon which our salvation rests. But before we actually get there, I want you to notice what Paul does not say. If Paul were one of the modern-day preachers we have today, or modern theologians, he might answer our doubts by saying, oh, you don't need to worry about the future because God loves you. God is love. That would be true. God does love us. The Word of God declares that God is love. That's the ultimate affirmation in this paragraph. Look down at verse 39. Nothing in heaven or earth in all creation will be able to separate us from what? From the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Paul knew as a pastor, and he knew well, that we can easily doubt such statements. Particularly when it comes to life being difficult. We may say, all right, I grant God is love. But the question is, does he love me? (laughs) Does he love me? How can I believe he loves me if I just lost my job? How can I believe he loves me if my husband or my wife just left me for someone else? 
How can I believe that he loves me when I've just been diagnosed with an incurable disease? And even when things are going well in our lives, there are times that we probably all feel that question. Does God really love me? Does he really care about me? See, Paul knew these mere assurances that God loves us are not effective. They're true, but they're just that. They're mere assurances. And so Paul, rather than deal with this assurance on an emotional level, which would be God loves you, that's truly an emotional level statement, he turns from emotional experiences to factual experience. And so according to this verse, we can know that God is for us because we somehow sense that it is in his nature to be loving, but because also he has given us his son to die for us. That shows us factually that he loves us. We can know God's nature because of what he has already done in human history. And that's what Paul does there in verse 39, which is the ultimate affirmation of this paragraph. He says that nothing in heaven or earth and all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. He doesn't stop there. That is in who? Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that's a way Paul is saying... That it's only in Christ, beloved, and through the work of Christ on Calvary that we can know, that we can be assured of God's love. When you look through the Bible and you find verses that talk about the love of God, not too far, if not even in the same verse, there is either explicitly or by inference a mention of the cross. A mention of of Christ's sacrifice. A mention of the atonement. And that's what we want to look at tonight. The atonement. And so the cross of Christ is so important that he spends a couple verses here on it. And he's not here to develop some theory of the atonement. He already did that back in Romans 3 and we've been through that. But his immediate purpose in this text is to remind us factually... Not emotionally, factually, that the atonement is very real. And that we can know that God is truly on our side. So what does this verse tell us about the atonement? Let's look at a biblical understanding of the atonement. Well, first of all, the definition. What is that word atonement? What does that mean? Basically, if you were to define the word atonement, you would find this. The act by which God and man are brought together in a personal relationship. Further, it's a term that's even in our English language. It comes from words meaning make at one. Hence, a at one meant atonement. It, it, it priests presupposes that somehow there's been a separation between us and our God. We know that to be sin. And somehow that separation needs to be overcome. It needs to be bridged if human beings are truly to know their God in a personal way and have fellowship with Him. 
It's a term used to express a relationship. It's, it's, it's a term that's closely tied to terms like reconciliation and forgiveness. But there's a lot of questions about the atonement. First question that we come to, is the atonement limited? You've got to put on your theological hats here. We're not going to get into the mix of this tonight, but I'm just going to bluntly state the answer. Yes, it is limited. The atonement has to be limited. Unless you're a universalist and you believe that everybody's going to heaven. You have to agree that the atonement is limited because not everyone is going to be saved. The Bible clearly says that. If the atonement were not limited, there would be no one in hell. But even more importantly, how is it limited? It's limited because not everybody is saved. Only those who repent and believe in the Savior are saved. That's how it's limited. Only those who believe in Christ and confess Him as their Lord and Savior. Only those who have their sins atoned for, paid for. It's limited to those who believe. It's limited in its efficacy, which means basically its ability to produce the intended result. It doesn't apply to everybody. It's limited in its efficiency. It's limited in its application. It applies to those who come to Christ and desire to follow him as the Lord and Savior. But even a more important question than those two is by whom is it limited? (laughs) The question is, who limits the atonement? You can come up with a whole lot of answers. You can say, well, man limits it. God died for the sins of the whole world, and then man limits that atonement by whether or not they choose Jesus. That's what some people believe. Listen, the only true answer to that question, by whom is the atonement limited, is simply this. The right answer is God. God limits the atonement. He limited it in this sense, that it was an actual payment in full for the sins of all the people who would ever believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people who would ever believe, listen carefully, would believe because of his mighty work on their hearts based upon his sovereign eternal purpose. It's God that does a work in our hearts, beloved. This is why even tonight, uh, Daniel with the uh, seed sowers is down in in Redwood City, and he's putting up a storyboard, and he's going to be preaching to the crowds gathered down there on the plaza. I said, good luck with that. We'll see what happens. Um, It's his first time doing it. We can be praying for him. Some of us went down to Palo Alto when he, he did that. He'll be there, by the way, from 7 till 9.30, I think, if you want to go down there and watch what he does. It's pretty amazing. But he understands he's giving out the truth. His job isn't to save people. He's merely presenting the truth of the gospel to people. God has to quicken their hearts to believe, to turn from their sin, to trust the Savior. Only God can do that. Well, the second point here is that this atonement, that it's God's action. God has done it. It's it's a rather easy point to overlook if you're not careful. But it's very important. 
Because if you overlook this truth that God did this, God gave his son. You come up with a couple errors. First of all, the first error is made by people who think of the atonement as something accomplished by this loving Savior to change the mind of God. In other words, here we are, God creates us, we sin, God's going to wipe everything out. This is what some people believe. But Jesus is in heaven and says, no, no, Father, please don't. I love them too much. I'll go down and die for them. And after he debates with his father for a while, finally God the Father says, well, okay, if you love them that much, go ahead. <laughs> go save the day, Jesus. Some people believe that. That's not what Scripture teaches. It doesn't teach that God was ready to condemn us, but Jesus enters kind of the side door of the stage and says, hey, wait, stop. I'm here to save the day. That's really a a travesty of what happened. Because whenever you read the Bible from beginning to end, you see that salvation of sinners by the death of Jesus is God's idea. It's his idea. And that he, to use theological language, is the author or source of our salvation. Think of Isaiah 53, verse 4. It says this, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken. But look at what it says. By who? By God. Smitten by him and afflicted. The point of that verse, as emphasized there, is that God was responsible for Jesus' death. He makes the same point a couple verses later in verse 6, Isaiah 53. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who laid it on him? The Lord, God, the Father. Isaiah 53, 6 is probably one of the clearest statements for the substitutionary atonement in the Bible. But it states very clearly that God the Father conceived and carried out this plan. God was not made to love us by the death of Christ. He loved us from the beginning. And it was because he loved us that Jesus died. You can see how that plays into the idea of our eternal security. That if God loved us from the beginning, and he set his love upon us, and he's going to save us, nothing's going to overturn that. Second error people make in thinking that Christ's death, about Jesus' death, is that they see it as the result of, of human actions only. You see that in the passion of the Christ. You see all the suffering, physical suffering that Jesus went through. And it was horrendous. But you walk away going, what a terrible day that was. Wow, evil one then. These jealous men killed the best man who ever lived for no reason. What a miscarriage of justice that was. It is true that evil men conspired to do away with Jesus. But the Bible never stops there when speaking of the atonement. 
Remember in in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter basically put it this way. He said, this man, speaking of Christ, was handed over to you, speaking of the religious people that crucified him, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Don't get me wrong, they were guilty. But the important thing is that Jesus' death had been planned and accomplished by his own Father. So the atonement shows that God loved us from the beginning. Indeed, he has always loved us. And it shows us that he truly is on our side. Third point here out of this verse is that the atonement involved God's only Son. You say, well, that seems pretty common sense. But it teaches us a number of things. First of all, it really speaks to the full deity of who Christ was. For it was his divine being that gives the death of Jesus such full force and meaning. There's probably a lot of people down in Mexico that die all the time by the name of Jesus. (laughs) They're not going to save you. See, if Jesus was just another human being, his death would have had no more value or significance than any other human being who died. Well, yeah, sure, maybe he led a good example when he was alive, but he died just like everybody else died. See, the, the, the thing that made his death unique was that he was uniquely the Son of God. He was holy. He was of infinite value. And that his death can be a true atonement for our sin. Remember how John the Baptist addressed Jesus when he saw him coming. He said, look, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we need to understand that God is the author of our salvation. It points out that God has always been in love with us, set his love upon us, He has loved us from all eternity. But if that is all that can be said, a question would immediately arise, but how much does he love us? We all love to some degree. Sometimes we do it not so well. Our love weakens. Paul wanted his readers to know that God's love is not like that. That he loves so much more. He loves completely. And he's able to love you throughout all of life's difficulties. How do we know this? Because he gave us his own son. His one and only son. You have to understand, Jesus is the greatest gift that God had to give. There was nothing greater. He wasn't holding anything back. There's nothing in all the universe more precious to God the Father than His own Son. And there's nothing greater than God's Son. So when God gave Jesus, He truly proved the greatness of His love by the most precious gift of all. Someone said it this way, The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. 
His erring child he reconciled and resulted and rescued from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. The fourth thing here is that God spared him not. This this verse kind of carries it beyond even what we've seen so far. It tells us that God did not spare Jesus. He could have spared him, but he didn't. And anybody that understands anything about the Bible can see the reference here back to the Old Testament story of Abraham and Isaac as Abraham was called to go up on top of Mount Moriah and sacrifice his own son. It's interesting because in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek word used here for spared is the same word found in Romans 8.32. And the same word used in the Old Testament is the same word used here in the Greek. And it's, it's used to translate what Abraham did back then in his obedience to God's command to sacrifice his son. In the NIV, it's translated this way in Genesis 22, because you have done this and have not withheld, that, that's the same Greek word in the Septuagint, for spared, your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants numerous. The irony of that story, the irony of that illustration, is that although Abraham was obedient to God, up to the point of actually raising the knife above his son's chest to kill his son. That is, he did not spare Isaac. But God intervened to accomplish just that. God did spare Isaac. Though Abraham was unwilling to do so. He was going to carry out exactly what God told him to do. And the story illustrates, and undoubtedly was, that also used, he was used by God to teach Abraham that one day God literally would not spare his own son, but would allow him to die in order that Isaac and Abraham and all other believers down through the eternity would be spared. You and I are spared. But... Please understand, Jesus is the only one who has ever deserved to be spared. He is the only one. Certainly none of us do. But by refusing to spare his son, God spared us so that we might be saved and come to spend eternity in glory with him. Somehow God conveyed that to Abraham on Mount Moriah which is why Abraham named that place, remember what he called it? Jehovah, what? Jireh. The Lord will provide, right? It's unfortunate the modern day word of faith movement is take that Jehovah Jireh and cheapened it. And they talk about their material blessings and oh, the God will provide a new car, a new house. That's not what it's talking about. Please don't use God's title, Jehovah Jireh, is referring to our material blessings. It means so much more than that. 
Because God provides for us by giving up his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The last thing here, God delivered up Jesus for us. And this brings us kind of to the conclusion. The first statement was a negative one. He did not spare his own son. But now he turns to a positive statement. And he says, but gave him up for us all. What does the statement mean when it says that God gave him up for us all? Obviously, it means that God delivered him to death. Jesus died, whereas Isaac did not have to die on Mount Moriah. But see, it's not just a physical death that's implied here. The physical death that Jesus went through was horrendous. It was definitely probably one of the most gruesome deaths ever. Crucifixion was that kind of a death. But this death was a spiritual death. Involving a temporary separation somehow from God the Father when Jesus was made sin for us, the Bible says. And he actually bore the wrath of God against sin in our place. Remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the agony that Jesus was facing, it says that he even, it was so, so fierce that he sweat drops of blood. That's a literal, physical, medical condition that can, that can actually happen to people when they're so stressed out. Their blood vessels break and it mixes with the sweat and it comes out of their pores. And Jesus prayed that this cup may be taken from him. And people often look at that and go, oh, poor Jesus. All this physical pain he's going through. That wasn't it. It was the spiritual side. Because later on, he prayed on the cross, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? That's what caused the anguish. This man wasn't shrinking from physical death. That was the the least of his worries. As painful as it was. Instead, it was the horror of, of the holy, eternal Son of God as he faced the experience of, of being made sin for us. Someone who has never even so much as experienced sin became sin. And he bore the wrath and separation from the love of God in our place. He was delivered up so that we might be spared. He bore the wrath of God so that we might never have to bear it. It's a hard thing to understand. It's very difficult. But Paul wraps things up at the end of this verse, in verse 32. And he basically says, How will he not also give him graciously, also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's point is, is that if God the Father is willing to do this to his own son, You don't think that he's going to make sure that what Christ died for is going to be kept? It speaks to our eternal security. It speaks to the foundation, the very source of our salvation. It's like saying this, if a rich rich benefactor gave you a million dollars and you thought you would, maybe he was going to 
bless you with a dinner and you drove down to Redwood City and you said, well, let me get the, you know, I'm going to do the parking meter. Oh, I don't have any quarters. And you turn to your rich benefactor and say, can I borrow a quarter? And he just gave you a million dollars. You think he's going to say no? I don't think so. See, that's the point. He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also, not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That all things doesn't necessarily refer to blessings. However, God does bless us materially. But basically, it means whatever your circumstances, whatever your trials, whatever your pain, whatever your persecutions, whatever your hardship, God will use all of these things to make you more like his son. And one day you will be glorified like his son. Because if you are in Christ, you will be saved. What a glorious thing. What a glorious truth. I want us to understand as Christians tonight, as we come to this table, that we're not called to be double-minded in your spiritual understanding of your relationship with God. You need to know that God is working out all things for your good and that he will surely do exactly what he set out to do. He who began a good work in you will complete it. I pray that this will be an encouragement to you. And I pray now that as we turn our hearts to our communion time, that you would examine your own heart. The Bible tells us that this table is for believers, those who have trusted in Christ for their salvation. It's a cracker. It's some juice. It represents the the body and the blood of Christ. But it's just that. It's a symbol. It's nothing more than that. But it should cause us to remember what Christ has done because it was his very words that said, do this until I return at the, the Last Supper he had. He wanted his disciples not to forget the sacrifice that he was about to make. And we're looking back at that sacrifice now, and we want to remember it. Let's pray, and then uh, we'll sing a, a song, and then we'll have our communion time. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the atonement. We thank you for what it stands for, for what it brings to our understanding as far as salvation is concerned. And Lord, we pray now for our communion time together that you would um, minister to our hearts. Lord, that we would prepare our hearts for these elements we're about to receive. And Lord, as we just come up casually, whenever you you want to come up and and come up to this table, Lord, that, um, that we would go back to our seats and partake of this with our family or our spouse or just by ourselves. And just thank you for your goodness for your grace, for your mercy, for your salvation, for the atonement we have through Christ. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.